Sasswhat is a show about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, the hopers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit our Facebook page. This is Sasswhat, a show about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Mansky, and it's my privilege to introduce my son and co-host, Andy. Hello there. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing quite well. It is a very interesting show tonight, I think, for a number of reasons, and I'm really excited to talk about some of the news desk items, especially because I think they've left an indelible image in our heads that will be fun to play around. We're going to have to name that little creature in question. <laughs> That's perfect. Okay, well, now that we've got that out of the way, Andy, how are you doing? Not being haunted by Boris. <laughs> or trying. Trying not to be. It's 6.45. <laughs> I hope that, no, it is 6 o'clock. So we're going to pause right now, because it's going to go through... Are we going to continue right now? We'll just keep here? rolling, okay. I think. Okay, I mean, welcome to the Matsky Sasswat Tower household, where we have um, just grandfather clocks going off. It's like you're here listening to us talking about at Boris. at our kitchen table, Boris. Actually. Boris coming around the corner. Boris, Andy <laughs> peeing his pants live on Sasswat, <laughs> screaming... Probably need to get a bleeper out if that ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> Just hit the, hit the cough button. Okay, well, <laughs> we will uh, definitely, I think, Running be going through the glass door. to Boris first tonight. But but before we do that, what's up with you? How are you doing? Good. Um, vacation Bible school was this week at our church. Uh, I helped out in several different areas with that. Um, it's lots of fun this year. Um theme was Mighty Fortress, something like that, um, and it was really, it was really an enjoyable year at VBS. I enjoyed myself. I've, I volunteered, for the record, just so the record states that. Um, it's good to have the record. You know, the just record. Just in case. Good old the record. Um, <laughs> I volunteered, and it was lots of fun seeing the kids enjoy themselves. You know, the kids that are only four years younger than me, yeah. stuff like that. Um, here's the thing. I think it's time for us to unveil our secret weapon. Boris? Where is he? No, oh, not, no. not yet. Boris is still in his crate. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but, uh, for years now, I think we've been bandying about the idea of a crypto zoological oh, yeah. theme, vacation Bible school. And I, it just—it seems to me that the time is completely right for that to finally happen. And so the idea, with they, with Vacation Bible School, you're usually moving through five lessons, one per day, and we could have Patterson Gimlin film, <laughs> Minnesota Iceman, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think we could easily, we could make it like a vacation cryptozoology School. month easily. By doing, you know, five-day weeks. So we're just putting it out there. You know, publishing houses, if you want to contact us, we will work with you, help you refine your um, your cryptid of the day. Churches, we can put a Christian spin on things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No doubt about it. And the thing I think I'd be most excited about would be the corresponding puppets. <laughs> 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 so, Yes. So that is going to be a thing. You heard it here first. So should we go over to the news desk? Should we let Boris <laughs> oh, no, don't say out of the crate and let him hop around oh the gosh. kitchen? Okay, so just before we started recording, I showed Andy the uh, video that's been making the rounds here. That was brought to the attention, at least I, I believe it's of Cryptomundo, by Igor Burtsev, who is a credentialed and well-known Bigfoot researcher from Russia. And this video uh, allegedly shows a strange, small, hairy creature, both 
reclining, I would say, at the beginning of the video, and in close proximity to the camera, Way and you, you get a close-up look at its face and one of its hands, and then the video cuts to a different uh, time, evidently, and the creature is sort of walking and appears to hop on a couple of occasions around the home of uh, whoever these people are. So, Andy, let me get your take on the video. Oh, and the, the creature in question is who uh, we are now affectionately referring to as Boris until another designation should come forward. It doesn't allegedly show something strange. It does show <laughs> something strange and hairy, regardless. Um, for me, this is the thing that nightmares are made of. Um, <laughs> let me just say that this thing is freaky, whatever it is. If this is actually like someone's child dressed up at the first... I'm sorry, but this thing's freaky looking. This thing has way too big of like eyes, and its nose is weird, and it's like its mouth is weird. I never really see its mouth open, though. Not open, no. You see lips, it would appear. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's like his big mm, lips. Yeah. His big mm, lips. You know, like kiss, kissing lips, it looks like. It's so So weird. are you saying that you think that it's a child? I think it's a child dressed up at the beginning. Really? Yeah. That has bees but, stung the oh, lips. Oh. It just has big see, eyes. See, that's almost, to me, that's almost the worst thing it could possibly be. And with be. someone's hand... Like, reaching for that hand. Because that hand's, like, the size of its chest. And the, another thing that makes me suspicious of it, it looks very much like that one photograph that was hoaxed. The one that's, like, on book covers, do you know what I mean? Is there a name for it where it's, like, the shoulders are above the head? Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. It looks a lot like Yeah. That. You know what it reminds me a lot of is... What was the chimp? I'm so... That Oliver. was in... Oliver. There's a I'm couple so things. I'm scared to turn around now. There's a couple things about it that remind me of Oliver. You know, one is the one is the face. Really, if you were to take all of that weird hair away, the face is somewhat reminiscent of a a monkey or a chimp-like face. But it's especially the one time where you see it walk, and it, the way that it walks bipedally. And sort of the way it shifts its weight from left to right as it walks really reminds me of Oliver for some reason, except for the fact that this thing is relatively small. I mean, it's mo no more than two, two and a half feet tall. It's... <laughs> Are you leaking? <laughs> um... It's just so weird. I do... the I. Do and don't like the Oliver comparison. Don't like it just meaning because, like, Oliver creeps me out. Just saying. I don't know. I mean, it's just so odd. And the way it walks is like, uh, 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 yeah. uh. Like you're talking about. For those of you who don't know what uh, uh, uh <laughs> yeah. means, it's sort of like, um, like its shoulder juts out-ish. Like it shifts mm -hmm. its weight on the top of its body, the opposite side. More, not just the, like, humans walk sort of like that way, but with their arms. This is like the whole body goes one way when it moves. And it's a really creepy look that I, terrifies me thinking about it. Um, my question is, why are we just hearing about this now? I mean, in the article we read, it's like, allegedly, there's evidence that it was taken in 2016. November 2016. November 2016. Mm -hmm. Why is it taken till July I know it. it's allegedly from Russia, right? Ish. I think it said Azerbaijan, didn't it? Isn't that the name that I was reading? Well, it's all over. It's Eastern Europe. Okay, Eastern yeah. Europe. Well, I former know. Soviet. Um, okay. I just don't know. The thing that sets this video apart to me, of Blob Squatch videos, obviously, is that it's close up. I mean, it's right there in the camera, and then you're right in the same room with whatever this thing is. So it's it can't be dismissed as um, something, you know, too pixelated or what have you to make anything out of it. The question, the only question is, what in the world is the creature? And I think that's the source of sort of the disease with looking at it, is that it 
just doesn't fall into any category that's very easy to identify. I just don't understand. The problem that I have with it, in the second part where it's walking, is it's way too short to be a quote-unquote baby Bigfoot. Because if it's a baby Bigfoot, I mean, that thing is tiny to be, when it grows up, eight feet tall. That thing's like two feet tall. Maybe it's a newborn. And it's walking? <laughs> I don't know. Do Bigfoots actually fly eventually? Like, you know how we go from ca- crawling to walking? They skip crawling and they just walk and then they fly. Oh, my. Oh. I just don't know what Boris is. Yeah. So Boris, if you have any Boris. ideas about what Boris is, write or tweet at us because we're all ears. Speaking of which, I didn't see any ears on Boris. Uh-huh. Did you? It, no. It was all hair covered in that area. Um... If you have an idea for Boris's last name, no. <laughs> don't make them too offensive and send them to sassupmail at gmail.com. Should we move on from no. Boris Blank? <laughs> no, this will be just 50 minutes of on Andy, Boris. Of Andy going, I just don't know. I honestly have no clue what the second part is. The first part, like, I, I can almost dismiss as a hoax. Honestly. Honestly. But the second part is so weird. Actually, I think the first part's more. There's something believable. weird, little weird walking around somebody's kitchen. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, let's move on. Okay. The other thing that was worth mentioning, I thought, is that Rob Lowe made an appearance on Jimmy Fallon and talking about the Wood Ape, which, without naming it naming the group specifically, suggests very strongly, as well as the location, which he does name, that he was out with the NAWAC. And they showed a short clip of a program, evidently, that Rob Lowe is doing with his son called The Low Files. And they were out, and it was sort of your typical quote-unquote night vision camera. And they were seeing things, and obviously felt like they were being surrounded by apes. Because that's what they say a number of times, as well as bleeped out things. And um, so that was that was Rob Lowe's appearance on Jimmy Fallon. Reactions? I have a hard time trusting it. I found it funny how Jimmy Fallon and him were laughing about wood apes and everything. I honestly found it funny. But... I just don't know what to make of that video. Is it Boris's parents looking for him? <laughs> what is it? They're really lost. At yeah. Time. What if the Russian Bigfoot video where it's like hopping along, that's Boris's dad? That would be cool. And then they make a movie with Rob Lowe, Finding Boris. Return of Boris. Return of Boris Creek. Yeah, I think I, it seems to me that Rob Lowe takes this seriously. And just the way he was saying things, it really seemed like he was being honest. I found it interesting, the reaction of the crowd, and sort of the reaction of Jimmy Fallon, too. Although he did make a good point about cats. <laughs> Some cats outside make horrible sounds. I wouldn't want to go out there either with cats making sounds like that. So it, what it was to me is sort of this little microcosm of how... Most people, the majority of Americans, just their reaction to the Bigfoot or Wood Ape topic in general is just to laugh it off. To me, it stood as sort of a symbol of that. Um, I found it, like, with the crowd. It was really weird how the crowd was just laughing at Jimmy Fallon laughing. Yes. I think they're paid to laugh. Ooh. Conspiracy! Okay, so... (laughs) Boris is hunting for... Uh, who's hunting for who? Is uh, Are you storyboarding is, is right Lowe, now? Just is Rob Lowe <laughs> teaming up with Boris, or is he teaming up with Boris's dad, a.k.a. Um, name for Boris's dad? Write us in a name for Boris's dad. I then, think Harry from Harry and the Hendersons Harry? has to come in at some point. He go... Uh, yeah, that's it. Look for a future Sassoid episode, The Adventures of Boris and Boris's Dad. <laughs> Write us in a name. 
Like, um, can, we, can we what? Go on. Go on, yes, yes. <laughs> I will leave Boris behind in so if, the Ukraine or wherever he is. So if this is the type of stimulating conversation that you enjoy, you have the opportunity to do that with us publicly by attending the Sasswet Meetup in Peninsula, Ohio on Thursday, August 17th, starting at 6 p.m. And this is taking place in Peninsula, Ohio at 6 p.m. at Fisher's Cafe and Pub in beautiful downtown Peninsula, directly across the street from the Winking Lizard. And I want to put this hook out there right now. The person who comes the farthest is going to receive a really cool giveaway prize. And unfortunately, Beans has already written in and said he can't make Aww. it this year. So the prize is going to have to go to somebody else besides Beans. And uh, he set the bar really high, riding down from Alaska as he did. So uh, I don't think Alaska can be beat, but um, we'll see. We'll just have to see. Are you looking forward to the... Yes, I'm very much... I can't get Boris out of my mind. Um, I'm very much looking forward to it. I promise I will be much better than Haunted by Boris. Maybe I'll, I'll probably, in, you know, the half a month it will be till then, I'll probably have moved on a little bit more from Boris. Well, I, if yeah. you do, I think maybe what we'll engage in is a group watching of the Boris video, and then we can... Um, you know, each speculate about what we think it is. Dress Tommy up as Boris. <laughs> freak me out. <laughs> as we're eating our eggplant fries. Oh, yeah. So, yes. Please, if you can, join us for the Sasquatch meetup. Uh, they have an outdoor patio, but chances are we're going to try and get some inside seating this year. Just to make sure we don't sweat to death. Because that would just be weird. It's happened. <laughs> And then, weather permitting, we'll venture out to the nearby CVNP to see if um, baby Bigfoot scampers across the trail in front of us. And Andy jumps into the pond out of fear. <laughs> yes. All right. Any other news items that we're missing? Um, no. Okay. They're oh, crap. there was that Washington State photo. Oh, the real Bigfoot? The Yes, the real... <laughs> Bigfoot. Um, not a bad profile of a Bigfoot or a stump or whatever it bear was. Bear dapping. I think it was a bear dapping while doing a handstand. Did he just score a touchdown? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was probably playing the Bears. Yeah, he's Cam Newton. And Get it, the yes. Bears. Cam Newton, Bigfoot <laughs> version. I'd like to come up with a funny Cam Newton Bigfoot spoof, but I can't right now. All right. Moving on from Boris. All right. So the, the bulk of our episode tonight is going to be our presentation and reaction to an extremely well-written article by a listener of ours, uh, Dr. Jarrett Ruminski. And uh, Dr. Ruminski wrote in to us a while back, and we're really glad to have him as a listener because I think he comes at this subject in a very thoughtful way and in a way that we do, and, and longtime listeners to this show know that both Seth and I, as open-minded as we are, tend to approach the subject personally from a very skeptical standpoint. And that's due in large part to the fact that neither one of us have really had any concrete experiences out there, and Andy, neither of you. So we're sort of caught in the middle of being highly interested in the subject, yet not having the sort of certainty that an eyewitness would have and does have when you talk to them. And so Dr. Ruminski or uh, Dr. Jarrett, I don't know how um, formal or informal he wants this to be, did write an article for Skeptic Magazine. And this was in 2015, I believe it's a November 2015 issue, and he very kindly uh, sent us the article and gave us permission to talk about the contents of the article 
in the recording. So I think what we're going to do is go um, pretty much section by section through some of the article and then make some comments about what he's written. And so this is a real sort of change of pace because in the recent past we've been talking about weird Bigfoot of the West Coast and really gone out there on the clothesline as far as welcoming the high strangeness reports. But um, this is going to be a pretty challenging episode, I think, for a hardcore Bigfoot believer. I started chuckling if a listener heard me. It just, I heard challenging, and it would be funny if it was like challenging for us, like halfway through it, we just have a meltdown. It's like, I can't take it anymore. But no, this will be fun. This will be lots of fun. The skeptical side, we say it every episode in our opening. We're open to the skeptical side because you have to be. You can't believe everything. You don't believe everything people tell you. At least I hope you don't because they might believe some pretty crazy things. But um, I'm looking forward to doing this. Doing it right now. So the title of the article is Man-Made. And that gives you a sense right away, I think, of where the article is going. Man-made, Jarrett Rominski looks at the culture and practices of believers in hairy hominids in the information age. Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Wild Man, whatever you want to call it, this legendary hirsute giant is North America's favorite, frustratingly elusive, spectacularly camera-shy, forest-foraging hominid. When it comes to cryptozoology, the study of hidden animals, Bigfoot is one of the undisputed lords of the mystery manner. Yet, despite the paucity of evidence for its existence, people still believe that Bigfoot is real, and in one sense, the creature really is alive and well in the world today. Of course, Bigfoot is not literally alive as a flesh-and-blood critter, but the search for Bigfoot continues to flourish in the information age. Indeed, the idea of Bigfoot flourishes because of the information age. This no doubt seems paradoxical. Global digital communications characterize the 21st century world. It is also an urban world. The majority of the human population, 54%, now lives in cities, and that percentage is still growing. Moreover, the global economy has brought about a steep decline in the world's forest cover, thus in an urbanized, digitally connected world in which more and more of the human population has less and less contact with nature, why in the heck does belief in Bigfoot, perhaps the most awesome mythological symbol of humankind's primal past, continue to thrive? In reality, Bigfoot lives on precisely because the world is more connected, more urbanized, and increasingly less beholden to traditional authority figures and institutions. In a digitally networked global society where people exchange ideas at a lightning pace and where the influence of traditional knowledge gatekeepers is waning, Bigfoot provides people with an emotional connection to nature in a world where fewer people experience nature, but they can experience it through Bigfoot. This elusive cryptid also provides stability and a sense of release via the notions that there are still mysteries in the world, that dedicated amateurs can still make great discoveries, and that so-called professionals and scientists do not know as much as they think they know. That is the opening segment. I'm excited for this article. Your thoughts so far on the points that are the made? The fact that less people are spending less time in the woods, even though there's more contact with everyone, is a valid paradoxical point. I just love paradoxes, so makes me happy that they're... And it's a true paradox. I'm going to try to fit in paradox as much as I can in my <laughs> yeah. following senses. But the paradox that is presented is definitely valid in a way that it contradicts itself, because... We're more connected, yet we're spending less time in the woods. Even though we know more, we think we know more about the woods, we may not. And that's an interesting commentary on the fact that people say, well, why don't we have footage of something because more people have cell phones and cameras. But if they're not in places where those things are typically seen, then that has some explanatory power to it right there. All right, then let's continue, beginning with the segment entitled Subcultures. Bigfooting is indeed a subculture, a culture within cultures that are made up of a large number of groups 
with which people identify and from which are derived distinctive values and norms and rules for behavior. They also exist in relation to larger dominant cultures. In the world of Sasquatch enthusiasts, online technology, black helicopter-laden conspiracy theories, crackpot pseudoscience, anti-elitism, salt-of-the-earth populism, and even genuine curiosity combine to create a fascinating Bigfoot subculture. Indeed, you cannot explain the subculture without considering the conspiratorial context in which it marinates, contexts that reflect broader social trends. The information age, the era of the internet and instant communication, distributes these conspiratorial contexts to millions of people every day in the industrialized world. This rapid flow of unregulated information, which suffers no peer review beyond those who exchange it, keeps Bigfoot, quote-unquote, alive. The Spanish sociologist Manuel Castells writes that the information age, a.k.a. the network society, is characterized by the networking form of organization and by a culture of real virtuality constructed by a pervasive, interconnected, and diversified media system. Castells argues that the network society has created a space of flows and of timeless time, in other words, continuous flows of information within distinct cultural channels. Message boards, websites, social media groups, podcasts, etc., that can self regulate and self perpetuate. This process creates powerful expressions of collective identity that include proactive movements as well as reactive movements that build trenches of resistance on behalf of subcultures seemingly threatened by a new tiny world. Yet, even as the information age threatens subcultures, it also allows them to thrive. Of course, the world of Bigfooting existed before the internet but the internet has perpetuated Sasquatchery as a contained subculture long after the notion of hunting the beast has ceased to be a mainstream topic. There remains an overwhelming lack of physical evidence to prove that any creature like Bigfoot is actually traipsing around in the forests of North America, so there is no need to rehash the is-it-real debate here. Instead, I'm going to focus on why the information age keeps Bigfoot real to so many people. I'm going to try to understand why these Bigfooters believe what they believe and what belief in Bigfoot can tell us about some significant issues affecting society in the 21st century. Subcultures, what do you think? I agree completely. Bigfoot has, and even in the years I've been around in the Bigfoot community, you can tell that it's gotten bigger thanks to the internet. Um, the way it's became its own culture, I mean, obviously it's always been its own culture. Or, you know what I mean. It's always been there. There's always been that group of people. Well, at least to like John Green. There's always been that wave of people. But with the internet, it's now almost anyone can do this. Well, it's not like... It's that anyone who has an interest in this can feel that they are perfectly connected with the community. And it's very interesting how the community has changed and how yet it's still the same in many ways. In the five years I've been around the Bigfoot community, really in it, in like the three, four years, it's it's crazy how much ha- all that happens in this field and how it all ties in with certain things. You may have said that before this part, but like the, how conspiracy theories and stuff like that wave themselves into this culture. And that ties in with two things that he said really uh, very well. And that is that what the, inter- what the internet allows really any topic to enjoy, and I say that in quotes mm-hmm. and, and somewhat sarcastically, is um, that there is no peer review, meaning... There's no, and the other word that is used there is it's unregulated. A flow of unregulated unregulated information, and that's what we have today on any topic. Mm -hmm. If you go on the internet and you do a search, what you get back is some of it comes from reputable sources, and other information that comes back to you is just from people who happen to have a computer and access to the internet. And that's the unregulated nature, I think, that it's being talked about. The other thing, and you mentioned this as well, is, as it says in the article, uh, this process creates powerful expressions of collective identity. And the Bigfoot community is a 
almost a perfect case study for that. And I've talked about this a long time ago on a previous Sasswood episode, and that is that there are various uh, Bigfoot orthodoxies within that community, meaning that there are things that you need to believe about Bigfoot in order to really be in the insider group. And if you don't sort of publicly say, this is my stance on it, then you'll be moved to another group, you know, in the opinions of some people. Like you'll be in the woo group, Mm -hmm. or you'll be in somebody who's really out there just because you might have publicly entertained this or that notion about the creature. So that those are, you know, marks of a subculture, and we've both noticed that that is very much the case. Um, one thing that I will, I'll, I'll save this comment, I think, to the end, because it's one thing that this article does not deal with at all, and it's the main sticky wicket. It's the main point that this doesn't address, that um, there's problems with addressing it. And I'll just leave that there for now, but we'll definitely come back to it. Anything else in the subculture section? Um, not, no. Okay. So, you also, Andy, you were right in sort of anticipating that um, even to the beginnings of Bigfoot and his being aware of that in the United States, this goes back to, you know, the 1920s. And media has always helped to get the story of Bigfoot out. And so this is uh, continuing on in the text. First wave of Bigfoot, 1929 to 1980. Bigfoot is literally a creature of pop culture. Mass media helped cement its place as North America's most famous cryptid. It is impossible to give a complete history of Bigfoot here, but some historical backdrop is necessary in order to understand the underlying forces that still drive Bigfooters to this day. Two core events helped forge the modern pop culture notion of Bigfoot. These events are connected through the people and media that stretch them into a decades-long phenomenon that spawned a new subculture dedicated to finding North America's, quote, great ape, unquote. The John Burns Tales In 1929, John Burns, a teacher working on the Chehalis Reservation near the town of Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia, Canada, published a collection of tales detailing the supposed existence of a race of giants that lived high in the Canadian mountains in an article for Maclean's magazine. Although the native tales about wild people were diverse, Burns synthesized them under the category of Sasquatch, a term he coined by anglicizing a word in the language of the Coast Salish people. These tales spread the wild man legend throughout Canada. As one skeptic observes, all the modern Bigfoot mythology grew from this regional seed. Burns' tales attracted two individuals who had become godfathers of Bigfooting, John Green and Rene DeHinden. John Green was a newspaper publisher based near Harrison Hot Springs, became convinced that Sasquatch was more than a myth. A graduate of the Columbia School of Journalism, he was a gifted narrative writer, and over several decades he compiled Sasquatch sightings into several books that still serve as revealed scripture for modern Bigfooters. Rene de Hinden was a pugnacious Swiss-born immigrant with a notoriously prickly temperament. He referred to scientists as, quote, clodhoppers, unquote. After coming to Canada, in 1953, de Hinden found his life's calling via the Sasquatch. I'd been searching all my life for a chance like that, a chance to really accomplish something, he said. During his lifetime, de Hinden was probably the world's only full-time Sasquatch researcher. He became so obsessed with finding the beast that he actually abandoned his wife and son to hunt the creature. We parted company in a nice way, you know, as adults more or less, de Hinden told the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Somebody said it was either the Sasquatch or me, referring to his wife. Well, I choose the Sasquatch. Right or wrong, I'm not crying about it. I will return to Green and to Hinden. First, I have to mention the other major event that further drew them, and many more, into the new Sasquatch subculture. While Green and to Hinden spent the 1950s investigating Sasquatch in western Canada, the small mountain town of Bluff Creek, California, became America's Sasquatch Ground Zero. In the summer and early fall of 1958, Bluff Creek bulldozer operator Jerry Crew started finding huge footprints stamped around his worksite. On October 3rd, he made a plaster cast of one of the prints. 
Crew took the cast to a local newspaper, the Humboldt Times, which ran a story accompanied by a picture of Crew's cast that wondered if the tracks were a human hoax or the actual marks of a huge but harmless wild man. The tracks were almost certainly a hoax perpetrated by local contractor and lifelong Bigfoot hoaxer Ray Wallace, a joker who, in the words of naturalist Michael Pyle, had an insatiable need to build mountains of baloney. And I am inserting my own euphemism there. Wallace's death in 2002 made national headlines as the death of Bigfoot. Despite the shadow that Wallace cast over the Bluff Creek incident, the Humboldt Times christened the track maker as Bigfoot, and it ran subsequent stories about the creature that helped to turn Bigfoot into a media phenomenon and made Rene DeHinden and John Green, who thought that Bigfoot was the U.S.'s version of Sasquatch, into lifelong researchers. Bigfoot's media stardom became further solidified on October 25, 1967, when Roger Patterson, a rodeo cowboy and consummate huckster who never seemed to run out of get-rich-quick schemes, along with his friend Bob Gimlin, allegedly filmed a Sasquatch strolling along the Bluff Creek tributary of the Klamath River in Northern California. The film made Bigfoot world-famous, and Bigfooters still revere the film as a sort of holy Sasquatch relic. Let's stop there and talk about some of the things that appear in this portion of the article. Um, I like how he talks about John Burns. That's cool. How they bring up how Sasquatch came about, the name. Um, Rene DeHinden and John Green being interested in they're bringing them into the story when they were really first getting to know each other and really getting into this is interesting too. Yeah, the stuff about Ray Wallace has always troubled me a little bit. And, you know, it's due to the fact simply that he was there and he seemed to have been someone who was interested in playing pranks on people and just getting a laugh at others' expense. I certainly, personally, don't think that the the wooden footprint maker things that I've seen that he allegedly used to make the prints can't account for all the tracks that were found out there. Uh, they just can't because of the the type of terrain in which they were found and the weight involved and and things that have been researched pretty thoroughly. But it is troublesome. I mean, I have to admit, it does bother me tremendously that Ray Wallace is a part of this story. And um, because of the sort of foil that he is to the whole situation. And it's correctly pointed out, I think, in the context of the, the overall article, that it is, you know, the Humboldt Times putting that picture on the front page with Jerry Crew holding up the cast. No doubt about it, that took Bigfoot from being local legend to, you know, national and even international infamy. So there's no doubt about the fact that media helped to launch Bigfoot into the consciousness of more people. When you get into the stuff about Roger Patterson, that's a very, very touchy subject. And what what usually happens, you know, when when you have a skeptic uh, who is really analyzing Patterson, Gimlin, Bluff Creek, it, it becomes, you know, and I, it's it, it becomes a character study of Roger Patterson. And by all accounts, Roger Patterson had published a book. In that book was a drawing that he had made of a Sasquatch that looks a whole lot like Patty. And anyone who deals with this mystery, whether they are a believer or skeptic or whatever, you have to deal with the question of, was Patterson lucky? And the Sasquatch that he drew, which was female, um, did it just happen to then look like Patty? Or 
are you the person willing to connect the dots and say he took steps to ensure that that would be the type of creature that would appear in a film? We've said on record numerous times that we buy Bob Gimlin's story because yes. we've heard him. He seems 100% convinced in his own mind that what he saw that day was not a person in a suit. And I think anyone who talks to him face-to-face -face would walk away with that same impression. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. Definitely what Bob Gimlin saw, he thought was real. That's our, And he had a very strong impression that it was real. So if it was a hoax perpetrated by Patterson, Gimlin was out of it. Yeah. He was there. And in order for the hoax to work, Gimlin would have to be convinced that what he was seeing was not a man in a suit, nor was it any other creature that normally populates the woods. So just some asides on that. Uh, but uh, should we continue on? Okay, the Bigfoot community. As lifelong Sasquatch investigators, Green and DeHinden embodied the qualities that Bigfooters still embrace today. They were hard-nosed, no-nonsense, roll-up-the-sleeves, amateur researchers, undeterred by the guffaws of professional eggheads who dismiss Sasquatch as a mere myth. This salt-of-the-earth, anti-elitist charm fits nicely with a conspiratorial approach to science in the natural world that has always engendered a persecution complex in Bigfoot hunters. We often associate conspiracy beliefs with grand ideas about the Illuminati and the New World Order, but they need not be so grand. Political scientist Michael Barkin defines a conspiracy belief as the belief that an organization made up of individuals or groups was or is acting covertly to achieve some malevolent end. Varying levels of paranoia fuel conspiracy beliefs or conspiracist ideation. People are drawn to conspiracy beliefs because they provide a narrative to help explain the frustrations believers feel when trying to navigate and comprehend the world's many uncertainties. Political scientists J. Oliver and Thomas Wood note that narrative structuring of information is central to human cognition. Conspiracy theories are attractive because their Manichaean narrative structures provide compelling explanations for otherwise confusing or ambiguous events. Bigfooting has always been an us-versus-them phenomenon in which dedicated, usually amateur Sasquatchers, have positioned themselves as truth-seekers hell-bent on investigating a creature that a cadre of uninterested and possibly malevolent professional scientists have inexplicably refused to acknowledge via conspiracy of silence. According to Bigfooters, if scientists would only devote themselves to searching for the Sasquatch, the beast could move out of the dusky mythical fog and come into the spotlight of truth. The fact that scientists dismiss Bigfoot and sometimes mock the dedicated amateur hunters who are short on time and resources but long on passion provides Bigfooters with a straightforward, compelling explanation for why Bigfoot hasn't been found. Both John Green and Rene DeHinden operated under the adversarial framework. Scholar Joshua Blue Booz, author of Bigfoot, The Life and Times of a Legend, argues that Bigfooters embarked on a contest for dignity, a quest to delegitimize the middle-class autonomy of professional know-it-alls by proving that Bigfoot, the object of scientific scorn, was real. Science is the pursuit of the unknown, Green huffed. Now maybe the scientists think there is nothing unknown since they know it all and therefore they don't have to pursue it. DeHinden, who had no filter to speak of, was even blunter when he described what he would do if he caught a Sasquatch. I'd take the scientists by the scruff of their collective neck and rub their faces in it. Similarly, in 1996, he observed that I have no degrees, I have no PhD, thank God for that. You start out with a PhD, you've already got about 60 strikes against you. Neither Green nor DeHinden were scientists. They therefore served as high-profile spokespersons for what became the first wave of Bigfoot subculture. Media dissemination via newspapers, men's magazines, TV specials, newsletters, and pseudoscientific journals united the primarily white, working-class male Bigfooters in their quest for dignity. Blue Booze notes that collecting Bigfoot media stories and launching their own expeditions allowed Bigfooters to call the beast into being to prove their manhood by going out into the supposedly tame North American wilderness to find and subdue the last true wild monster. It is no coincidence that the first wave of Bigfooting peaked in the 1970s. 
In the face of broad social movements by minorities, women and students, and facing a declining economy that destroyed many blue-collar jobs, catching Bigfoot allowed white working-class men to stay on top of the social order, to lash out at the forces conspiring against them. Nevertheless, the first wave of the Bigfoot subculture was not entirely limited to one social class. One of the towering figures was Dr. Grover Krantz, a tenured professor of physical anthropology at Washington State University. The same media attention to Sasquatch that attracted Green into Hinden also intrigued Krantz, who, due to his field of specialization, latched onto purported Bigfoot tracks as well as the Patterson-Gimlin film as evidence for the creature's existence. His study of Sasquatch was predictably detrimental to his professional career. Brian Regal, a historian of science who has written extensively on Bigfooting, notes that despite his scientific pedigree, Krantz's personality traits, a streak of paranoia, a lust for stardom, and an overconfidence that bordered on arrogance, clouded his ability to critically analyze Bigfoot. Krantz acknowledged the problem of fake footprints, but he believed that his anthropological training allowed him to spot the real thing. He even kept secret two characteristics he used to authenticate Sasquatch tracks, so he could always stay one step ahead of the hoaxers. I don't think anyone outclasses me, at least not since Leonardo da Vinci, he once boasted. Unfortunately, a determined hoaxer, fed up with Krantz's blustering, fooled the scientists by casting a track in a cat litter box and adding details such as an arch, dermat glyphs, and walnut shells to mimic traces of underfoot debris. Krantz's arrogance went hand-in-hand hand with his paranoid, conspiratorial view that others were out to squelch his work. He wanted the fame that would come with proving Bigfoot's existence, but his scientific colleagues would not take him seriously and refused to publish his Sasquatch research. Like Green and DeHinden, Krantz spent much of the time trying to prove the existence of the elusive Sasquatch while pitting himself as a truth-seeker undeterred by howls of professional scoffers, but he always wound up empty-handed. Green, DeHinden, and Krantz all failed to find their elusive hirsute quarry. DeHinden died in 2001, Krantz died in 2002. At the time that this article was written, Green was now in his late 80s and had retired from active Bigfoot research, although he still catalogued sightings. In a crucial sense, however, the efforts of these iconic Bigfooters were not in vain. In the Internet age, dedicated next-generation cryptozoologists consider these men to be the founding fathers of Bigfootery. I just like listening. This is great. Um, just how this whole, like how they brought up the fact that they, they're, the godfathers, quote-unquote, of cryptozoology were amateurs, for the most part, with mm -hmm. the exception of Krantz, were amateurs is really, is really interesting and really inspiring in a way, that people look up to these guys who are just normal guys in such a way. It's really interesting. That bird's really loud. Yes. And that's, um, that is a feature that continues in the Bigfoot pursuit, is that it has to be amateurs, because it doesn't seem like any scientists are looking. And I think I've, something to add to that is the idea that whatever you do in life costs money. And a scientist at a major university is going to do projects that get funded by the university. And if the university is not interested in funding a Bigfoot project, chances are the only way that's going to happen is if the... Uh, the professor in question seeks to do this on their own time and on their own dime. So that's part of the problem as well, is that there's very little funding as far as, you know, there is no funding. Let's say it that way. There's no funding for scientists or anyone, really, to go out searching for Bigfoot. Almost all of that is self-funded. If you're very fortunate, you may meet someone who gives you enough money to do an expedition or two. But by and large, um, this is self-funded amateur work, and that's simply the case. And uh, what Jarrett Raminsky is bringing up is this idea that you know, that was very compelling, and that can even be taken by some people an extra mile to where they want to prove big science wrong. Or at least in the case of John Green, he wanted a scientist to pay attention 
to this. And he states that many times in his work, that what he's doing is just trying to get science's attention, which I don't know if he did. Maybe he did. I mean, since Krantz got involved and now we have uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, maybe that was some of Green's dream coming true. So the last section we're going to look at uh, for reasons of time and uh, maybe some other reasons too that we'll get to in a second. It's Boys. called Bigfooting in a Digital Age. The second wave of Bigfoot subculture really begins with the advent of the internet and the digital age has been key to keeping the beast quote-unquote alive. The search for Sasquatch continued throughout the 1980s and 90s and it even added to its ranks two bona fide academics Dr. John Bindernagel, a Canadian wildlife biologist, and Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, a tenured professor of primate anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. Both men have written extensively on Bigfoot. Yet Bindernagel and Meldrum are not the major drivers of the contemporary Bigfoot subculture. That honor goes to the thousands of amateur Sasquatch enthusiasts who share research and stories about the elusive cryptid via internet forums, websites, and especially podcasts. As was the case with the first wave of Bigfootery, mass media fueled the digital Sasquatch era, but the internet-driven information age spread Sasquatch culture on a worldwide, instantaneous scale. Its technological basis notwithstanding, today's Bigfoot subculture still relies on two tried-and-true themes, conspiratorial beliefs that shady powers are suppressing the truth, and the idea that dedicated amateurs must boldly squatch where no elitist scientist has squatched before. However, before I get to the specifics on the second wave of the Bigfoot subculture, permit me to elaborate on whom the modern Bigfooters actually are. Simply put, while some are obvious cranks and charlatans, the majority are normal people in most other aspects of their lives. In 2010, sociologists from Baylor University in Texas published the book Paranormal America, a scholarly study of paranormal beliefs, which includes belief in Bigfoot, among the American public. The authors found that believers in the paranormal are different in some ways, minority groups with less societal power, such as women, African Americans, etc., as well as people with lower levels of education, are slightly more prone to paranormal beliefs, but only slightly. Paranormal beliefs also draw in people with higher levels of education and income. In fact, the Baylor study found that more than two-thirds, 69% of Americans, subscribe to some form of paranormal belief. Unless half of the U.S. is daft, an admittedly debatable point, then belief in the paranormal does not make you so. In fact, it makes you a qualified normal. As one scholar notes, belief in the paranormal is both normal and deviant. People from all occupations, not just the poorly educated and the nutty, believe in the paranormal. A 2005 Gallup poll hinted at this point when it found that three in four Americans held at least one paranormal belief. When it comes to Bigfoot, a 2012 poll found that nearly 30% of Americans believe that the creature is probably real, and that Americans are more likely than Canadians to believe in the beast. Another survey found that Americans are as likely to believe in Bigfoot, 20%, as they are in the Big Bang Theory, and that they're only slightly more likely by 10% to believe in evolution. With this information in mind, I am now going to focus on two significant examples podcasts that show how the contemporary Bigfoot subculture involves conspiracy beliefs, anti-elitism and distrust of authoritative institutions, and a longing to get back to nature, all connected via the online world of the information age. That's cool. More likely to believe in Bigfoot than the Big Bang Theory? That's really cool. Um, I really I really enjoyed that section, all the... the um, the the data, the real data out mm-hmm. there. Um, I really enjoyed hearing that. The fact it's actually normal to believe in the paranormal is, uh, I wouldn't call it a paradox, but it is slightly parado- paradoxical. The fact that really there is no normal when you think about it. Um, brought up John Bindernagel, who we've stated we love on the show. <laughs> um, just for the fact, I don't know if we said this on the show before, just for the fact he looks... Just like my grandfather, I mean, they they could be twins in a way, which makes us laugh every time we see John Bindernagel. So, I really, I I've really enjoyed just sitting back and listening for the most part. Um, you you might have heard me chuckle about the fact Americans believe more likely in Bigfoot than Canadians. That's nothing 
racist or anything. I just find it funny. <laughs> Nationalistic. For for some reason, I find it funny. It's just like, you know, Canadians are nice people. You'd think they'd believe in it more, but actually they're more skeptical. Yeah. I just find that fun. They're more tolerant of Americans who believe in it. Yeah, yeah, is. that's it. That's definitely it. And we love you, Thank Canada. You, Canada. We honestly do. We love you. All right, the article continues on. We're not going to go there yet. I think at some point I'd like to return to this article and especially focus in on the conclusion that he makes, uh, which is has to do with confirmation bias and so forth, which is basically we go out with our opinions into any endeavor and we tend to see what we want to see. I mean, one very simplistic example would be a little kid goes out into the woods and they see a large depression in the dirt and they say, oh, it's a, it's a big footprint. That's, that's sort of a very simplistic idea that, or, or illustration that gives you a sense of what is confirmation bias. Now, having said all that, I want to bring this up here towards the end because I said I would set it aside and come back to it later. And the thing that this article and that Jarrett does not touch on at all, is eyewitness reports. There's no mention that's made throughout the entire article, really, of what do we do with people who have claimed to have unambiguous, even daytime, up-close sightings of a creature matching the description of Bigfoot. I tend to agree with many of the things that he says about information systems and how information is passed along and uh, you know groups sort of self-policing and all those things. But what doesn't really, what's not even addressed is what about the people who say I've seen it, I've been close to one, not I've heard sounds indistinctly but I've seen these creatures with my own eyes. What do we do with them? At that point, something has to give because folklore is not enough of an explanation for me. There's not enough explanatory power there to say that, oh, that person is just experiencing folklore come alive. That's not enough for me to say, oh, yeah, you're right. So I, I, I find it interesting because some of the other scholars that uh, Jarrett brings into the discussion of his article reach very similar conclusions, and they tend to not deal with the eyewitnesses because at a certain point you can't. I mean, you're either... Or you can take the tack that um, they hallucinated or they misidentified but what about those people who are convinced and would, you know, stake their life on the claim that they saw what they would describe as a Sasquatch creature? What do you do then? And there really is no answer mm -hmm. to that from a scholarly or, or an academic point of view. Um, at that point, it becomes even more philosophical, I suppose, of a conversation where you talk about the nature of perception and things like that. So I just found that interesting. Yeah. And, and um, you know, that's something that um, any, any real thoughtful person who inquires into this field, you, you, have it, you finally have to come to some sort of solution that you can live with about, you know, why is it that... These things are seen repeatedly, but we can never get our hands on them. Yeah. Why do we always seem one step behind in going after these? And, uh, I mean, it's a truism. You and I have discovered this in digging into reports. It's hardly ever the people who go out looking for a creature that see one. It's people who weren't looking at all, who are just going about the business of their daily lives, and it's interrupted by this extremely strange happening and how do you research that properly if it's clear if it's semi-clearly if it well rarely the people who are actually going out looking should you be out there looking what should you do 
So we would like to thank Dr. Jarrett Ruminski for sharing the article with us. We would be extremely interested on your reaction to it. And so in order to do that, uh, we invite you to write in to sasquatmail at gmail.com. This is a very interesting, different conversation that I enjoyed having. Sasquatch is a small town monsters production. Woo!